Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is the Guardian. Before we begin, a warning. This episode contains mention of Aboriginal people who have passed away. Hi, I'm Paul Daly. I'm an author and journalist. Welcome to Book It In, a show about the big ideas behind great books. In this episode, I sit down with two guests, both anthropologists who curate Indigenous museum collections. Gilda Andrews is a Uluroi cultural practitioner based in Canberra. Gilda is a research fellow with the Australian National University and the National Museum of Australia. So I think when you find yourself within this system of things, of happenings, of utterances, of a bird arriving or a wind kissing your cheek, you know, we have names for all of these things in our language because they're important and we notice them. And so to feel as though you're embedded within that is also an expression of how you belong. So country really is a a statement or an utterance or an expression of how we belong. John Carty is the Head of Humanities at the South Australian Museum and Professor of Museum and Curatorial Studies at the University of Adelaide. Our whole world is built on this disturbance of Aboriginal people's country and of the living and of the dead and there's going to be a long storytelling project for our country to get past the blockages that have made that possible and that have made it invisible, really. Like the average punter has no idea that this problem and this pain exists for Aboriginal people still. John is also the author of Belgo, Creating Country, which tells the history of a community of desert artists in Western Australia. It was a really fabulous, insightful experience to be in the room together with these two because they both come at the same subject but from different places. The subject is country and Indigenous connection to it. You can't have a conversation about museums and their collections of Indigenous cultural material without talking about country in the Indigenous sense. And that is why we start the conversation about understanding the meaning of country. John and Gilda, welcome to Book It In. You've both done a lot of work to further insight into and knowledge of the Indigenous understanding of country, especially through the arts and working in museums. John, your book Belgo beautifully documents and realises the history of Belgo art and your connection to it, and we'll get to it in our conversation. But I'd love to start off with you, please, Gilda, if we can. Can you tell us about your relationship to country as a Uluroi woman, beginning with where your country is and what it's like? It's a beautiful question. Thank you for asking. Uluroi country is in northwestern New South Wales and it goes over the border into Queensland. We're on the floodplains there. The Narran Lakes are part of a part of my country. We describe ourselves as freshwater people. Uh, we have the, the river system, the very north of the Darling River, you know, the, where it's the Barwon. And it's a 
magical place, really. Um, it's it's really sensitive to water, uh, to the presence of water. We have drought and flood, which are, of course, you know, more extreme nowadays and, and less predictable. But the way I think about my country actually is that it has the capacity to host difference and bring people together and different people together. We're on the edge of the Brewarrina fish traps and we're on the edge of the arid rangelands. So we're, we're edge of the desert, but we have this rich soil that's been cultivated over thousands of years of, you know, freshwater woodlands. So it's a real bringing together of, of different country, actually. You know, you could, you could walk or drive only a few minutes and, and feel like you're in a different place. We're also the home of black opal. Lightning Ridge is the only place in the world you can find black opal. And so we also have this material that captures the spectrum of colour made from water, ancient water. So water is a hallmark of our country. And, you know, I never grew up there. I grew up in Sydney and I now live in Canberra. I do have family in Uluru country and in Walgett and Lightning Ridge, but I've also got family in Wagga and, you know, Sydney and, and, and all over the place too. But Uluru country is, you know, it feels like we're always there because we, you know, we, we go there, clocked up a few kilometres to get there um, over the years and back, but it's beautiful to think that I am Uluru country and I can have that wherever I am, whether it's in Sydney or Canberra. Lovely explanation. Thanks for thanks for taking us there. Um, I'm just wondering how you describe, in more general terms, what it means to be on or of country, and and why it is so important to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I think listeners would love to get an insight into that. It's. I think it's probably important to detach the notion of country with place or landscape or land. Mm. I think because country really is referring to a whole system of things. So it's it's less about the, the ground that's under your feet. And, you know, it's inclusive of climatic patterns, winds, rainbows, you know, all these dimensions of things that you feel when you're in a place. It doesn't matter where you are. You know, a special place to you, you know, you, you feel and you're, you become in tune with these places. So I think that's a useful way to think about what country is. So I think when you find yourself within this system of things, of happenings, of utterances, of a bird arriving or a wind kissing your cheek. You know, we have names for all of these things in our language because they're important and we notice them. And so to feel as though you're embedded within that is also an expression of how you belong. So country really is a, a statement or an utterance or an expression of how we belong to places and to this broader system of things that's happening. Non-Indigenous people often talk about country. Mm. Um, it's often referenced in the mainstream media and, of course, in acknowledgements of country mm. every day mm -hmm. all, all over the country. But do you think non-Aboriginal people can truly understand its meaning? Mm. I think that's a really good question, Paul, because I guess if you think of the cultural diversity across Australia... You know, we're using one English term, country, to describe what is 
or what we're suggesting to be a universal concept that Indigenous people all share, you know, a version of country. You know, we've all got different names for this. Um, So I think the word itself has done some really hard work in creating a a national device for us and, and giving us language to be able to start to translate all of the different versions of belonging that we all have. So I think, I mean, country isn't technically then an Indigenous concept. It is already going through a a mediation, if you like, through the English language. So I think we're already in a middle ground here and it's enough of a middle ground to to kind of beckon non-Indigenous people towards it and also invite them to think about what a version of their belonging might be. And there is no wrong answer to that. If If you have a connection to place... If you sense a kind of belonging to to the place that you were born in or is special to you, I think, you know, the term country then starts to take on or gesture towards, you know, what it means for Indigenous people to have a belonging to place. John, over to you. You've written a book that's a detailed history of art in Belgo. You spent 20 years connecting with Belgo, researching Belgo, writing about Belgo. And you've done this as a white fellow who's come into the community, formed relationships, sat with and listened to people and patiently gained trust. John, where is Belgo? I think I should start by saying I wish I'd heard what Gilda just said 20 years ago. Mm. Um, I think that's the best and most generous description of the concept of country that I've come across. And we've been friends for a long time and probably should have asked you that. Uh, 15 years ago. I might not have had to spend 20 years trying to wrestle with the concept. It was really beautiful. Gilda? Balgo is a little community of about three or 400 people just south of the Kimberley in Western Australia. It's just over the border um, from the Northern Territory. So it's about a 11, 12-hour drive from Alice Springs on a dirt road and a similar drive from Broome coming the other way on a, on a slightly less dirty road. So it's, it's a really difficult place to get to, but it's worth the drive. Which way did you go? I go both ways all the time. Went back there recently. This most recently, I came from neither of those roads. Oh. I came from the south, up the old bush track from Lake Mackay to Balgo. Right. Yeah, which is that even That give you longer. a different sense of where Balgo is by coming in from the south? Totally, and I, because I felt like I was for the first time really following the footsteps of those old people who had walked north to Balgo, mm. those old people who had been my teachers and who had taught me about this salt lake down south. And I felt, yeah, it was quite an emotional drive because I felt like this is where these amazing people that taught me so much came from. This is what they were trying to tell me. Yeah. That so, beautiful country down south is what you need to know about. It's not just about Balgo, you know. And the way that you get there kind of, I don't know, sets up the place a little bit differently each time you go. Totally. I went to Belgo as a, you know, as a young white fella trying to become less ignorant and trying to understand what this painted country that I was seeing everywhere um, and that people were saying, oh, this is country oh, this person's painted their country, but there was no other information. And I just felt really annoyed by that. I felt that we were shortchanging something brilliant and profound that was happening in Australia and that something that maybe was a bit more challenging than we might like to think. And as a young guy just studying art, I just just felt 
that I was looking at the surface of something that was so wide and so deep and so important that this word country <laughs> that, that Jill has just spoken about required more. John, in your book, you describe your relationship with the Queen of Belgo Art, Eubina Nampagen. Can you tell us a bit about Eubina and how did she help you understand what country means for Belgo artists? So I went to Belgo and I spent a few years living in Belgo and I spent my adult life in and out of Belgo trying to understand what people are painting and what this idea of country is. And I think probably my, my greatest teacher in a way was, was Eubina. She was my grandmother in, in that part of the world. She was in her 80s, I was 25, and we barely spoke the same language. But she taught me relentlessly. She spoke at me relentlessly. She sang to me relentlessly. And she, she assumed in me a great understanding that I didn't have as a young man. She gave me a lot more credit than I deserved. And she tried to teach me about her country as she was painting it, talking in Gugaja. I have a, I have a question about that. And it's, it's a beautiful relationship that you're painting a picture of here. You would drive her around, right? And explain what would happen when you drove her about country and how she spoke to you. Yeah, well, she would hunt me out. Before we would go, we'd go hunting every weekend for the, the three or so years that I was living in Belgo permanently. Every Saturday morning, she'd come and hunt me out. She'd figure out if my tracks had left my house or not. And if they hadn't, <laughs> if they had, she'd track me and find me. If they hadn't, she'd bang on the door with her, with her digging stick and she'd call my name and I'd know that it was time to take her hunting. And we would just go driving. She'd tell me where to go. We'd pick up some other old ladies and I'd just take them hunting. And during that process, you know, which I at the time probably mistakenly thought I was doing a favour to these old ladies and... Uh, in retrospect, now I look back and think about what an incredible gift that was to be driving around this this desert country with these matriarchs who knew every grain of sand out there, every story. So my whole education about country was not really about painting. It was about being with people on country, visiting country, hunting on country, and even listening in in languages that I didn't at the time fully understand. Yubina spoke old Gugaja. Like even her kids sometimes found it difficult to hear, but she would sing, like her language was musical and she used to sing and talk in the most amazing ways. And I would often disappoint her. I could see the frustration in her face because she expected me to understand things and I, she could tell sometimes I didn't because I was just learning the language. And whenever I saw that look on her face of, frustration at me she would laugh and cackle and then just sort of drag me closer and she would I'm doing this to the microphone in the mm. studio here but she'd just put her lips around my ears and she'd put the words in my ear and she'd talk and she'd say the same thing over and over and over that I'd misunderstood previously this is so the words didn't slip out right yeah because what I realized in retrospect is that she wasn't just feeling like I'd misunderstood she felt the words had not reached me mm. they had slipped Somewhere between us, as a, an 80-year-old Aboriginal woman and a little 25-year-old white fella, something had slipped between us. And so she had to put the words in my ear. And just reflecting on that, it's quite emotional. It's mm. quite a beautiful thing that she did. I think those, those words that I still struggle to understand around what country is and what she was painting and trying to teach me, they're still in there somewhere mm. and I'm still wrestling with what they mean. Well, this is, this is why the book is so lovely because mm. you've explained it you know, so so beautifully in, in in writing and writing about this stuff is 
not always easy. It doesn't mm-hmm. always always translate that emotion and that reality. Um, you also wrote that Eubena showed us that painting country is part of the endless remaking of the desert world. It's not an act of representation, but an act of creation. Mm-hmm. You just explain your understanding of that. That's my translation of a life of learning from her. She would never say, I am making a picture of my country. She would always say in language, this is my Nura. Nura, and Gilda was talking earlier about how we kind of, um, we've made country into a, a translational concept in many ways between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. In the desert, that word is Nura. And Nura is the places where you were born, the places where your maybe your father passed away, where your grandmother passed away, where your feet first touched the sand and where your selfhood expands from that sand into the people around you, the places around you. And that includes the things that happened before you in time, both in your family and in ancestral times and creation times. And it includes history. It includes whitefellas. It includes the animals. It includes the wind that kisses your cheek or the bird that comes to see you. Country is, as Gilda was saying, Nura in the desert is not just a place, but all the layers of meaning that have been sedimented into that place through time, through your relationships in the universe and the relationships that precede you and that come after you. And so country is this much bigger concept than we are accustomed to reckoning with when we talk about place. And I think this sense of belonging, this sense of home, and you ask how do people understand this in a, from a whitefellow perspective, is like, where do you belong? It's not necessarily where you live. You know, I don't know that I belong in Adelaide. I don't know that I belong in Melbourne anymore where I grew up. I feel like I belong when I'm in the desert. I feel like I belong when I'm with my family. I feel like I belong when I'm chatting with Gilda about these things. So I think there's this question of what it is to belong in Australia that is bigger than just the Aboriginal sense of belonging. But we can't have that until we reckon with the Aboriginal sense of belonging and all that it encompasses. So what you just said is very similar to something that you wrote some years ago, which was really instructive for me in terms of coming to understand country. And it was one of the most instructive things I've heard until I just heard Gilda <laughs> ex- explaining it. And Gilda, I just... <laughs> Gilda, 2.0. I, I just wondered, you know, in terms of a whitefella yeah. explanation of country, yeah. how, how was that? Oh, look, I give it a solid credit plus. <laughs> um, no, look, why, listening to John, you know, it, it really kind of struck me, the, the way John's describing or reflecting back to me his understanding of what country means for Indigenous Australians. I mean, it's really it's it's really interesting for me to hear that because I'm thinking, okay, this same sense of belonging, you know, what would it sound like if a white person was going to describe their belonging? What would it sound like if there was all of these noticings of when the rains are coming, what that petrichor, what the smell is, you know, just this, wouldn't it be wonderful if people had a depth of knowledge about the place that they are in and the the place that they believe that they belong in um, to be able to express it or reflect it back, you know? Oh, yes, it's a beautiful day today. It's a spring day. Sydney-siders know this weather. They know it. 
there's a particular feel about it. And so when you talk to another Sydney cider about, oh, it's a nice day, yes, there is an instant understanding across and between each other that conveys an experience that is shared. And so how do we bring in this language and also bring in a permission for these noticings to become part of our vernacular in a way that has us expressive and expressive of our belonging, of place. So I think, you know, it's it's how do we work on that without feeling as though we're appropriating a concept that is not ours? Mm. And I think the way we feel about place is really worth exploring more. I just wanted to ask John a, a, another question about Belgo. You went back there recently for 35th anniversary celebration. Can you tell us what that was about and how it relates to your book and the collection of Belgo art? And um, what's the community like today? Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful place. It's it's been a beautiful place for a really long time. Balgo started as a mission, and then it got moved to the current site, and they kept the name Balgo. So that place has another name, Wiramanu. So Balgo is a place that that emerged in the twentieth century to accommodate the changing world for desert people. First, it was missionaries who were providing what they described as a kind of buffer zone for Aboriginal people to stay away from the violence that was happening on the Canning Stock Route, the exploitation that was happening at stations. And Aboriginal people would gravitate to the mission because that's where their families were and there was a a safe supply of food and shelter there. But that came with its own costs. The price of safety was losing access to your kids. And that's a terrible price to ask anyone to pay. And Australia is defined by that story in more ways than one. The mission devolved. Aboriginal people began to take control back of this strange place called Balgo in the 1980s. And it's at that time that people begin to recalibrate their own economies. So in the 1980s, Aboriginal people became Wiramanu. This place called Balgo became an Aboriginal-governed place. And part of that governance was to recreate the cultural economy and painting is what happened at this moment. And so in 1981, 82, people decide they want to paint. They're going to share their story with the world and that's going to become an economy that they can earn their own money, tell their own story and be the authors of their own futures. And so, you know, from this incredible sort of desire to paint by the people of Balgo that, that has created this incredible art movement. Wally Itty Artists, the Aboriginal organisation that was, that was created by the old people there to take care of this ambition, was, um, was born in 1987. And I was there just a few weeks ago for the 35th birthday celebrations for Wally Itty Artists, which is the first art centre in Western Australia and, and still one of Australia's most amazing places. The week preceding that birthday party, which even had a cake and we... We had a lot of dancing and celebrations. It was very beautiful. It was a return to country trip that Wally Idiatis had taken all of these, um, these amazing artists back down to their country that their grandfathers and grandmothers had walked out of in the mid-20th century to find safety and to find a home for them in Balgo. And a lot of these artists hadn't been back there to Wilkinkara, which whitefellas call Lake Mackay. It's a giant salt lake in the middle of central Australia. 
some of those artists had never been back there. Some hadn't been back there for, for a very long time. And so I, I think what was so beautiful to me was that the Arts Centre saw its role as connected to country, as its job was not simply to service the art market, but to service the ambitions of the artists and the ambitions of their grandparents, which was that their children and grandchildren should know their country through painting it and that through painting it you get the resources to go back there. And I think there's a, there's a beautiful realisation of those old people's ambitions for why they started painting that's been realised in what Wally the Artists is doing right now. Mm, and can I add something to that? Um, you know, this intense change that occurred across Australia for Indigenous people actually also changed, materially changed country itself. Mm. You know, when the harvesting stopped, things become out of balance. When the burning stopped, things are out of balance. When we don't have access to our tracts of land, things are out of balance. So the imposition of, of new social systems and structures had a profound effect on the nature and the systems and the patterns of country itself. So the remaking of country through painting is also folding in those processes of a changed country and a witnessing of a changed country as well, which I think is really important to recognise because we can talk about country and, you know, John and I both drifted into almost a romanticised version of what country means for us without recognising the non-access to land, the rivers drying up, the harvesting of the floodplains, you know, the, all of these dimensions that are actually transforming the place in front of our eyes. So to, to bring that you know, into the conversation is really, really critical so we can understand then um, the utterances of country which Balgo art is, as John's talking about, as also it's a remaking of a changing place. And it's in keeping with and a witnessing of a changing place that we're all folded into because, you know, th these are white systems that are being, you know, imposed. So there's a, there is something there that is inclusive of non-Indigenous systems that are being imposed on places, you know, that are always actually in a state of change. And this goes to what I read of yours where you were saying it's really important to view country ecologically yes. as, as well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? Yes, look, I, I think there's a real issue of the present in all of my work that is is as much about recognising the importance of our of, of historical moments. And, you know, when I approach these objects and this material, I must bring in the present here. An ecological view also recognises this changing landscape that the rivers are no longer flooding, for example, so this object means something very different today. But on the other hand, then we're able to use and see these objects for, you know, with a different kind of power that they have to speak to us today, not just to speak to us of the past, but to be relevant to our lives today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Jill, do both you and John work with collections of Aboriginal cultural material in mm-hmm. museums? Um You've done this for 23 years, children, and mm-hmm. you're an intermediary between Aboriginal communities and institutions, such as museums, which often have a very conservative and oppressive white colonial legacy uh, and tradition. You've written about the first time you viewed Indigenous cultural material presented on shelves, open and unashamed in a museum storeroom. I think it was uh, you, you and your two sisters went to museum collections within Australia and the US, the Peabody Museum, um, Mm. where there were remains. And you went to find objects of Uluroi country. Do you mind telling us about this journey and what you found? Yes. Okay. So my original interest actually is in museums and, and the way that we display, the way that we convey messages, the way that we have a dialogue with visitors. Um, and so I, I started to kind of equip myself with or use anthropology to kind of give me some tools to kind of understand what I'm looking at here, what I'm dealing with here, to better understand this problematic legacy that, you're, that you refer to, Paul. Um, and, you know, so I didn't really set out to look for Yulroy anything. I set out to kind of better understand you know, what these collection systems are, what these hierarchies of value means, how that's changed. Um, But (laughs) it's interesting because I thought, how am I going to convey what I find to readers of my research? And the readers of my research would be other anthropologists and, you know, it's in wide audiences, let's be honest. And I thought, well, the hook really has got to be me. I've got to use myself and put myself out there in an anthropological sense for others to be able to grasp the things that I'm investigating because how else can I talk about anthropologists, anthropology, museums to other museum folk? How do I hold up the mirror, the reflection back to them? I've got to use myself. I've got to bounce the reflection off myself. And that's really exposing, right? It is. But I tried to do it all other ways. I tried to do it, you know, and I found that this was my only, because they understand the language of the other and I represented that. So it's, it's how you read the environment in front of you. So where did it lead you? So I followed the collector, you know, I followed the expedition. So um, Tyndale and Birdsell went through Uluru country. I hope you don't mind. I'm just going to interrupt you there. Who was Tyndale? Um, Norman Tyndale was an anthropologist. I think actually his, his interest was in understanding cultural difference across Indigenous Australia. So he, he was part of uh, lots of expeditions that covered quite a vast kind of amount of the continent, really. Collected lots of stone, stone material, as well as uh, wooden material, as well as hair samples and, you know, other kind of biological material, as well as human remains on the travels. 
Tyndale was based at the South Australian Museum um, and Birdsall was based at the Peabody uh, at Harvard. So the collection that I was looking at was split across these two um, institutions. So, yeah, so it was the Peabody Museum at Harvard where that, that kind of, you know, drew me over. And actually I took my sisters with me because I'd run out of research funding and we, we sing together. And so we were literally, I thought, oh, if we could get a few gigs over there, (laughs) they could come with me and I wouldn't have to be dealing with this stuff by myself, you know. And so we got a few gigs over there and, and, and we had this experience together, which, you know, and we were singing in language, we were singing Yuleroy language, we were there on Yuleroy kind of, you know, on this kind of mission really to sing language back to collections so that they knew that we were there. It's um. It's a fabulous story and mm. it's fabulous to, to, mm-hmm. to hear, mm. you know, the depth of your connection with that country too yeah. and, and what you took there. Mm-hmm. Um, what does a reclamation by traditional owners of that material look like? You know, is repatriation absolutely essential? Um, that's a really good question because I think reclamation looks and feels lots of different ways. It, it, it manifests itself in lots of different ways. Um, initially for us, reclamation was us delivering Yuleroy song to that material and later on when we realised or discovered uh, the collection of a number of human remains in those places that, you know, it was an expression of solidarity, of being countrymen, of knowing that their journey, where they're where they're at on their journey, and also that they know where we're at on our journey too. So it's when we say reclamation, you know, really, it's, it's always been useful for me to think about us being on equal terms with those individuals that are that are currently in the Peabody collection. You know, they're they're looking after us. We're looking after them. We're trying to figure out how to do this. Um, and you know we need more we need more time we need more research we need more resources to be able to understand exactly what the context around these collect you know what 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 do we do here but also really importantly is what does this mean how do we learn you know for me really the the lesson the kinds of lessons we need to learn from these moments are that we never want to see this ever happen again ever Mm. You know, let's all commit to that. Just in terms of these collections mm. um, of material culture and specifically human remains, to mm-hmm. me as an outsider, I've always seen them as a testimony to a vast colonial crime scene mm. but, mm-hmm. and post-colonial. Mm. I'm just wondering how, how you view them in terms of Australia's recent past, post-invasion. I think people would expect me to use words that invoke right or wrong. To me, it's a testimony of our complex histories that we need to better understand. I think, I think, of course, I think it's wrong. It's it's a travesty. It's awful, you know. But I carry this in my, and I'm shown it every single day. The ramifications, the ongoing results of that kind of activity, it manifests itself in in lots of different and surprising ways. So. 
when I was kind of a young gun starting out in museums, of course I was talking in this way, that's wrong, this is the museum should, blah, blah, you know, using this kind of language. And I found that it offered short-term solutions. Okay, well, we won't use that, we'll do it this way instead. But it didn't result in learnings, especially learnings for me. So I had to change my tack, you know, think differently about what these collections represent. So I started languaging it differently because I think really what we want is to host a space where people can step towards the difficulties. If you're already telling them that it's wrong and that everything that they're based on and everything this place is founded on is is wrong, they've got nowhere to go. And, look, I mean, it's it's... It's really difficult, but I think there are other ways to think about and talk about this that can also invite creative responses to it. It can invite different kind of controversial responses to it. It can help us retrieve a learning. It can help us work through it because I don't think necessarily we can just accept and then move on. You know, what does truth-telling look like? Mm. It's, it requires truth-listening. And this bit in the middle that happens when you do this dance of figuring out, well, what does that mean for us today? So let's kind of figure that bit out because even the term truth-telling is a difficult thing. It it already implies a whole bunch of stuff. And so I think we can afford ourselves just a little bit of breathing space and, and creative thinking and shared language Indigenous languages in here as well to define what our current context is and then move forward. I think that's a super important point just just to jump in. I think if we don't find a common language before we start telling each other the truth, then we're not going to hear it. We're going to be still taking positions, consciously or unconsciously. There's such an enormous unconscious architecture in the average white person's brain in Australia that we don't even know about about how we listen and what we see as valid, what we see as evidence, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. that until we find a common language and that needs to be part of the process of truth-telling, of reclamation, of reconciliation, any of these words, finding a language that we share so that we are talking about the same thing Mm. and that we feel Mm. like the other person is hearing us. Mm. And and today's a lovely expression of that, like we're kind of doing that here in a, in a podcast studio, but unless we do that, we're going to have positions of right and wrong that are never going to get us towards a place where we're actually talking to each other in Australia. Mm. John is head of humanities at the uh, South Australian Museum, which is the biggest collection of Indigenous material, cultural items in the world, I think. How did you feel when you first saw that vast warehouse of spears and shields and everything else and then there was the the room off to the side there where I I think when I was there with you there were the remains of 4,600 individuals there. What did you think and what did that say about the task ahead of you and the museum? Yeah, so so six and a half years ago, end of 2015, I applied for this job because to me it felt like the most important thing I could do in Australia was to be to work with this most significant collection in the country of anything. And I would argue, therefore, one of the most significant collections in the world because of the story that Aboriginal Australia and these collections and their collective genius have to to continue to teach us. Um, 
I wasn't prepared for the scale of that. When you just, I wasn't prepared for there being five thousand spears or three thousand boomerangs. So that in itself is overwhelming when you you arrive at the museum that you want to work at and you realise in your body when you stand in that room and there are this many things, you realise that so much is there and that you are now responsible for reckoning with that legacy. And and I think part of that legacy of collecting that you're referring to is this keeping place, this separate room that I didn't really know about, to be honest. When I applied for the job, I thought I was going to be working with boomerangs and artworks and telling great stories and working with communities around the country to, to shift the, the power dynamics mm. in this collection that Gilda's talking about back into the hands of Aboriginal storytellers and custodians. What I didn't realise that there is a room with 4,600 ancestors sitting there in boxes on shelves. And I came out of that room really overwhelmed and I wrote down something to myself, basically saying, you're not allowed to forget this. You're not allowed to forget how that feels um, because something far worse than that is what everyone else, every, every Aboriginal person in Australia is carrying that ache and that sense of displacement and that sense of wrongdoing. And Gilda's been very generous in her description of all of this, but I think there is some reckoning required in, in our country um, that isn't always going to be comfortable and it isn't always going to have a common language. We need to tell ourselves that some pretty horrible things happen and that Aboriginal people were treated as specimens, were treated as flora and fauna and that their bones were collected as we would collect a boomerang or collect a crocodile tail or whatever. I don't think we collect crocodile tails, but um, <laughs> I... Coming out of that room, I think, was just a profound transformation of my understanding of what my responsibilities would be in working with this collection, which one is about storytelling with Aboriginal communities, but one is about a process that is much bigger than truth-telling. It's about taking things out of museums, taking people out of museums and taking them back to country. This whole conversation, we're talking about country, there is a really literal thing you can do, which is to take someone back to their country where they were dug up through various means. It wasn't all scientists. A lot of these ancestors sitting in museums around Australia and around the world um, were dug up by scientists, people in the medical profession, anthropologists, people like me. But the vast majority were dug up to build the places where we now live. You know, the roads that we drive on, the houses that we live in, this studio that we're recording in was probably, you know, a place where people lived and where people were buried. And I think much as I'm the greatest critic of museums and our practice, I also don't want to abdicate. I don't want the rest of us to abdicate this problem to museums and say bad museum because mm. mm. our whole world is built on this disturbance of Aboriginal people's country and of the living and of the dead. And I think that was what hit me between the eyes and in the guts when I first walked into that room is that, is that this is about our whole society and our whole history, not just mm -hmm. the history of mm -hmm. museums. And there's going to be a long storytelling project for mm. our country to get past the blockages that have made that possible and that have made it invisible, really. Like the average punter has no idea that this exists, mm. this problem and this pain exists for Aboriginal people still.
John, you have been at the forefront of facilitating reburials of some of those ancestors in that room. That's been a long time coming, right? It's definitely been one of the um, one of the most emotional and difficult and visceral things that you could do with your personhood, I think, in a museum, is to turn yourself to the work of reburying these ancestors because the actual reburials themselves are beautiful and healing and cathartic and, and amazing experiences. Um, but the journey to get to that point for a community to gain the trust of the museum again and then to work with that trust and build harmony and conviction that this is the right thing to do. And particularly, say, for our Ghana brothers and sisters in Adelaide, they have 800 ancestors in our museum that we care for that need to go back to country. That's an overwhelming position to put a community in. They should never have been in that position to have to bury that many of their ancestors in a town where there is nowhere to bury them. Mm. Adelaide is cooked, Mm. it's done, it's paved. The challenge for us then was to sit down with the Ghana community who wanted to do this and be the ally and be the facilitator of their vision, which is to say, we need to build a new place. And, And in the context of this conversation we're having, we have to make country. We have to make somewhere that is sacred somewhere that cannot be disturbed, somewhere that our ancestors can be at rest but isn't necessarily the sand hill or the tree where they were buried because that place is no longer available to you. This is an extraordinary cultural challenge for anyone. And I think what the Ghana did is is a, a first in the world, but what the Ghana did has lessons for all of us in this idea that, well, you can't bury all of your ancestors exactly where they were. So you create a new place. And what they did was incredibly beautiful. They took the sand and the soil from the four different corners of the region and they brought all that together. And we did a ceremony before the landscaping for this burial ground was created and merged all the soil from all the different parts of Ghana country so that wherever that ancestor was was from, they would be in their own soil. They would be smelling their own country. They'd be surrounded by the plants and the shade and the birdsong that they lived in 100, 200, 500, 10,000 years ago. And so the creation of Wangiata, which is the name of this burial ground in Adelaide, which is a, it's a slow process of reburying the ancestors there, um, has been, yeah, it's one of the great achievements of the Ghana people in, in the modern era. It's a really beautiful coming together in the most difficult of circumstances. And it's one of the, the things I'm um, most proud of, of my time in museums, is to have been a partner and a helping hand in that process. During... Reconciliation Week, you reflected on the peculiar role that you occupy as a white fellow in this cultural space. You said, it's weird as a white guy to be giving a lecture in Reconciliation Week, to be honest, but it's also absolutely right that I should be because it's not the work and the role of Aboriginal people to reconcile. It's precisely the responsibility of non-Aboriginal people to make space for others to step back and listen. Tell me about your approach to helping non-Indigenous visitors to your institution understand what that means and and understand country? 
Oh, listening to that back, the irony of that is I said uh, I talked about <laughs> making space and listening whilst delivering a lecture during. <laughs> I was going to point that out. reconciliation week. <laughs> I knew you would, so I thought I'd step in and spear myself. <laughs> Sorry, the John. Question, John. <laughs> um, I yeah i I see my job as to to step into that space and to not resolve from it and to not flinch um, because it's hard or because it's political or because I'm white, but to see those things as exactly the reason why I have to stay in that space, in that difficult ground, and to make that ground accessible and necessary for the generations to come, for my kids and for all the kids to come, that you grow up in an Australia where you have that conversation, where you speak about the beauty and the glory of Aboriginal culture, but you also speak really openly about the things that are difficult here. And, you know, I don't like preaching to the choir. I like talking to people who don't share my views and trying to get them to a point of dialogue rather than these positions that we were talking about earlier. Mm. How do we create dialogue? How do we create a licence for adult frigging conversations Mm. in our country that has been immature? and juvenile for Mm -hmm. so long, Mm -hmm. how do we create the adult conversation for an Australia where we actually feel like we are are behaving and belonging with some integrity together, Mm -hmm. you know? That's what I think it is. Um, I don't know. Sometimes it works better than others. I probably should stop giving lectures in Reconciliation Week maybe. (laughs) I don't know. What do you think, Jill? Oh, look, it lightens a load for us, (laughs) (laughs) which is a good thing. But, you know, something something that's occurred to me actually is this, you know, this term of ally, allyship. I don't know what the the collective word is, but, you know, we're, we're using this term ally to kind of, you know, speak in general terms around the things that you're saying. But you're, it's it's actually, you know, do, do you understand yourself as an ally is my question because the, I, I can see real limitations to that. It's kind of, you know, I'll help you, I'll stand alongside you and really what we're asking for people to do is stand in their own shoes. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't use the word ally. That came in after I started this journey. Yeah, right. I reckon. Mm. Um I would never use that word for myself, but others do. I don't know what the language is for it. I just mm. know what the work is and mm. I just know when it's when it's true. Well, you can see the limitations of the language, really, when we're, when ally is the term that is the stand-in for the work that we think we need to do. Yeah, it still, it still positions you as an outsider yeah. to another, yeah. another journey. Mm-hmm. And it, I think in... And, and that, but that's, that's, the, yeah. that's the really complicated moment that we're in because people don't want to appropriate or step into too far into what the spaces that Aboriginal people have been excluded from for so long. Yeah. So making space and stepping out of it mm. and I'll stop giving my Reconciliation Week lectures or whatever. But once you step out of it, you sort of, there's something that's on a human level that we're missing then, which is sitting here looking each mm. other in the mm-hmm. eye saying this is actually about us both. Mm. And this is about how our kids grow up together mm. in this country. And if I'm just your ally, at some point that's going to run out of steam. I don't know what the language is. Mm. Do you? Oh, look, I reckon my kids know what the language is. 
I don't know that we've we're thinking about the work in a sophisticated enough way to be able to language it. And you know, maybe we need to create better spaces for our kids to be kind of hearing about the limitations that we face and kind of, you know, handing it over to them and saying, well, where would you take it? Mm. Because they're living a different world than than we are. Um, but but you and I are increasingly holding on to that ball, not wanting to pass it on because we feel like we're not done yet. You know, I, I reckon I'm almost edging on the expiry date here to when do I relinquish when do I pass the ball, you know? And and I think that that's part of it as well in, in thinking that maybe we just pass on our learnings and not kind of feel like we have to do something before we then retire or resign or move on or go and plant a vineyard or do woodblock carving or whatever our, <laughs> you know, whatever gives us inner peace and joy. Why do you look at me when you say vineyard? Because that's what you want to do, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Just a, a couple of last questions, and it, it seems like a good time to ask Jill to, you know, th- there's a lot of well-intentioned non-Indigenous people yeah. working in... Allies, yeah. Allies <laughs> work, working, <laughs> working in this space. What, what, mis- what mistakes do you see them making and what do they, what do they need to do to, to, oh, to get it? Look, look, I would say what are the mistakes I'm making? I don't want to be sitting here saying you should have done this this way. You know, that's we've, we've done that to death, you know. Mm. I've been told, you've been told, you know, how would I do things differently is that I would put a, a different focus on people coming up after me to actually understand that they have more than capacity and capability to take this on and to share it. It is not my burden to, you know, have to kind of figure this out. I mean, I, I'm clever. Lots of other people are clever differently to me. So, you know, how, how do we kind of relinquish these things and not carry on personal burdens? How do we share it more meaningfully? And that's the kind of, I really think that that, to me, that's the, the chapter I'm in now is lightening the burden from my shoulders and in a way that, also offers generosity and permission to others to get things wrong because I need to ha- be able to still get things wrong because we need to take risks. So we're talking about the future here, yeah. which, is, which, is, yep. which is good. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you see us in 10 years' time? In- oh, where do I see us in? Look, hopefully, hopefully the way that we manage land is, is a little bit different really and I think through that will come a different attentiveness to place, a different sense of how we feel we belong to place. I think through that side door is the way that we start to work with empathy with each other on how you belong to place differently to me and then we can then, you know, start exploring these other dimensions. I think through country we will be able to share, create a shared language and think of our future differently as a shared space. I, I hope so. John? Yeah, I mean, I think that what Jilda's saying brings together everything that we're talking about. I think if you understand yourself as separate from the country, as I think consciously or unconsciously most white people do, that allows you to exploit it 
that allows you to do a whole range of pathological things and pathological societally, structurally, in terms of our economies and our environment. You can destroy something if you don't think it's you, Mm -hmm. if you don't think you're a part of it, if you think you're above it or you're separate from it. If we're separate from the environment, then we can exploit the environment. If you are a part of country, if it is a part of your personhood, it becomes culturally, politically and psychologically so much more difficult to destroy it. And I think that picking up on what Gilda's saying is that there's there's a growth towards a belonging here in Australia that will moderate and inflect the transformation of our relationship to the environment that will be a really beautiful, you know, without getting all mystic dolphin, I think that is the, that's the end game here where we can belong together in this new place we call Australia with some uh, shared language and some... Well, shared intent, I think. Intent. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Gilda and John, thank you very much for a remarkable conversation today and for your really generous reflections. It's been a real honour to chat to you about this stuff. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having us. John Carty is the author of Belgo, Creating Country, published by UWA Publishing. If you're interested in Gilda's work in giving voice to country, you should check out the National Museum of Australia's new environmental history gallery, Great Southern Land, where she worked as one of the project's producers. If you like this episode, I think you'd really like another one that I did where I interviewed Tara June Winch and Thomas Mayer, both of them Indigenous people, on Indigenous masculinity. This episode was produced by Alison Chan, mix by Daniel Simo. The series producer is Jane Lee. Molly Glassie is the executive producer. And I'm Paul Daly. Thanks for listening to Book It In. Remember to subscribe and follow us on your favourite podcast app. And tell your friends about us. It really helps us to find more listeners. We'll be back with another new episode next week. Until then, happy reading. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.